Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting content you love. Thanks! Hi, church. My name is Lauren. My pronouns are she, her. We are currently in a worship series called Begin Again, where we are looking back at the human family's origin story in Genesis 1 and 2. We're examining certain themes and locating ourselves in these stories in hopes to align our hearts with God's heart for the world. Our text for tonight is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 20, and I want to mention a couple of things before we read the text. First, you'll see differences in this creation narrative compared to chapter 1, like structure, style, vocabulary. It's been helpful for me to think about Genesis 1 as this big, transcendent, cosmic creation, and Genesis 2 as more of an intimate, imminent, Edenic, zoomed-in story of humanity and human particularities. Second, I have absolutely zero training in biblical Hebrew, but I've had to do a lot of work around Genesis 2 over the years because it's a text that has been used to uphold patriarchy and cisgender heteronormativity for a really long time. A woman, and queer myself, the mere mention of Genesis 1 through 2 can still be anxiety-inducing for me, and perhaps for you too. But one of the things that was really eye-opening to me when I was reading about how the word, was reading about how the word man in Genesis 2 does not mean male, but human, or human being, or humankind. This human being in Genesis 2 is not gender-specific. And although we don't have time to go into all the implications of that tonight, I think it's at least worth mentioning the nuance. And therefore, tonight, during our reading, I will use the word human instead of man. Lastly, while you may have noticed in Genesis 1 the repetitious phrase, and God saw that it was good, Tonight, as we read Genesis 2, I'd encourage you to notice the repetitious phrase, of the ground, or simply, the ground. The reason is because this human being, in Hebrew, Adam, is formed from the ground, in Hebrew, Adamah. So, the Adam is formed from the Adamah. It's a lovely linguistic connection, and I think speaks to the relationship between the human being and the ground from which that human being came. Okay, here we go. A reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 20. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no vegetation of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a human from the dust of the ground and breathed into the human's nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, 
And there God put the human whom God had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahan. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the human and put the human in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the human, You may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the human should be alone. I will make the human a helper as the human's partner. So, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the human to see what the human would call them. And whatever the human called every living creature, that was its name. The human gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the human, there was not found a helper as the human's partner. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. For work, I'm a chaplain at TCU. And one of the things I get to do in that role is to serve as the campus minister to Disciples on Campus, AKA DOC, a progressive college, college ministry where we are working toward doing community, inclusion, justice, and joy in the world God loves. One of our weekly programs is called Friday Feast, where we eat with one another and invite an area minister to talk about whatever theme we've chosen for that semester. Back in December, our leadership team got together to pick the theme for this spring of 2024, and these students chose theological hot takes. <clears throat> so we sent out a mass email to area ministers and invited them to come talk about their theological hot take. And well, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes was not only our first minister to sign up, she also picked the first date available. And next month, Reverend Deanne Carter is coming I guess Galileo isn't short on theological hot takes. <laughs> anyway, Katie came a couple of weeks ago, and no surprise to any of you, she spoke pastorally, prophetically, philosophically, and so beautifully about her theological hot take about morality, what it means to be good. A crowd favorite for sure. Tonight, I'm going to stand on Katie's shoulders because, well, they're sturdy, but also because one of the philosophers she referenced, a man named Martin Buber, is one I haven't been able to shake in thinking about Genesis 2. Martin Buber, 1878 to 1965, is most famous for his book, I and Thou, published in 1923. In it, he talks about the relationship between what he calls the I-it and the I-thou. Imagine the I-it, I-thou relationship as if you're shopping at the grocery store. 
You've made your way to the produce, perhaps, examining if the avocados are any good this week, and you look up and notice someone else examining the avocados, and they look up at you, smile, and ask, find any good ones? And then you chat about how to find a good avocado in your best guacamole recipe, and you're both on your way. Then later, you bump into your new avocado pal in the checkout line, and you smile at one another to acknowledge that you had something of an interaction earlier regarding the avocados or the human experience. You're really not sure. But something of a new relational dimension happened that didn't happen with all the other people that you're now standing in line at the checkout line with, and for some reason, it just feels right to smile at one another. Really, before the whole thing with the avocados, that person was just kind of, more or less, an it. But then slowly, with smiles and chit-chat about guacamole, that person has moved from less of an it to more of a thou, less of an object to more of a human being with a story, with a life. And this was just a ridiculous hypothetical story about avocados. But when you start eating and drinking with people, when you start swapping spiritual autobiographies, things can start moving from I it to I thou pretty quickly. So you can see why the American Counseling Association reports that when an I-it attitude becomes embedded in cultural patterns and human interactions, the result is greater objectification of others, exploitation of people and resources, and forms of prejudice that obscure the common humanity that unites us all. And why Buber saw the meeting between the I and thou as the most important aspect of the human experience because it is in relationship that we become fully human. So what does any of that have to do with Genesis 2? It's a great question. Martin Buber doesn't stop at the I-thou in terms of human relationship. He goes so far as to argue that one can move from I-it to I-thou in relationship with nature, that even, quote, a tree ceases to be an it, but a thou. That there's something sacred and shared between people and the earth, as if we're all ultimately made by the same stuff, the same source, ground and God. Genesis 2, verse 5, there's no one to till the ground. Verse 7, the Lord God formed the human being from the dust of the ground. Verse 8, out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree. And then again, verse 19, out of the ground, every living creature. What I see in this text is this interconnected relationship between the human being and the earth and God, this kind of rhythmic song about God forming the earth and how God from the ground produced a human being and out of that ground trees with fruit and a paradisal garden. Our Genesis 2 writer goes on a whole hype paragraph about how this garden is so lush and abundant and, and good that rivers flow from it and flow from it and flow from it and, and flow from it to lands of good gold. I like to imagine the beauty and overflowing abundance of Eden is representative of the beauty and overflowing abundance of God's love, which flows freely throughout the earth. And God, who has carefully crafted creation, who has knelt into the ground, into the dust, and intimately, relationally breathed the human being to life, then shares with the human being the intimate, relational, caretaking ownership of this beautiful abundance 
a partnership with a purpose, to till and to keep, to serve and protect and steward, to intimately work with the ground which God made from which the human came for the flourishing of the world God loves. This is some Martin Buber interconnected I-thou beauty. I think Genesis 2 might be the heart of what dominion from Genesis 1 is intended to be. And I, thou, careful and loving, tilling and keeping, serving and protecting and stewarding of the beauty of creation. But I think for so long, we've equated dominion with I, it, dominance. And our scripture for tonight makes me think our ancestors in faith knew so well how easy it was, how easy it is to other the earth which leads to othering one another, like eco-othering othering. It's like they knew we all have it in us to take and to take and to take, to practice I-it dominion, that they gifted us this ancient story that, like any good relationship, included a healthy boundary in the relationship between humanity and the earth. Yes, eat, delight, enjoy, but not from this tree, not from this one. If you eat of this one, you will die. I haven't quite worked this one out, but it is fascinating to me that the single command is about a tree formed from the ground which God has not consented for humanity. And the moment it's tasted without consent, the moment it's seen as an it, the whole thing seems to unravel. When God's good creation becomes an it to consume, all of a sudden the earth is exploited and objectified, and this then leads to the exploitation and objectification of others. As I've explored our text for tonight and taken a good look around, I feel like I'm super late to the eco-justice, eco-beauty party. Like, I might could have told you a couple of weeks ago that I hate that the human family has put our hands intimately in God's ground and from it formed weapons of war and constructed literal walls and that food apartheid and climate change was a thing. But I can't say that I, thou, tilling and keeping the earth has been at the forefront of my mind and my heart. I didn't know until this week that there's this thing called hostile architecture or exclusionary design where we've extracted the earth's resources to build highways to intentionally go around certain people or to keep them where they are. We've mined metal to form unnecessary arm bars in the middle of benches so as to prevent anyone who has no bed from rest. We've constructed metal spikes underneath overpasses to eliminate refuge for those who might not have shelter. And a lot of this hostile architecture exclusionary design is happening right here in DFW. This is the exploitation and objectification of God's good ground to exploit and objectify the human family. I think this is why the Apostle Paul says that the creation groans to be set free from bondage, that the earth cries, it whimpers to be set free, and not only the earth, but us with it, both us and the earth crying out for justice, for things to be set right. 
A few years ago, I audited classes online through St. Stephen's University. They have a program called the Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice, and I had enrolled in two courses as I was in the throes of my own theological rehabilitation. Shane Claiborne was one of the guest lecturers for one of my classes, and he talked about an organization called Raw Tools, where people weary of violence donate a gun and through lots of beating and clinking and clanking over an anvil, the gun is forged into a garden tool to then till and keep the earth. This seems so I, thou, Genesis 2 to me. Hope to the groaning and whimpering earth, a trace of the reign of God in doing beauty for our God who is beautiful. It makes me think of the ways Jesus paved inclusionary roads as he walked and walked and walked all over God's good ground to places and to people on the margins, like Samaria and a Samaritan woman. How he believed the earth had enough to go around even when a kid's first century lunchable was the only resource in sight. Or even how he simply uses the land around him to tell stories of God's goodness, like heaven is like a grain of mustard seed or heaven is like some leaven. It's no wonder Mary mistook Jesus for a gardener after he was brought out of the graven ground to life anew. So what does it look like to I, thou, till, and keep? What does it look like to set healthy boundaries in our relationship with the earth when we so often want to take and take and take? I think we could come up with a lot of things together, like serving at Southside Community Gardens or Opal's Farm. Maybe it's an adopting an animal from a shelter or considering the exclusionary design that might be present in our homes, workplaces, or church. Maybe it's starting to examine what we buy and the source of those commodities. But maybe, for right now, the next right thing is communion, that we taste the bread and drink from the cup together And in our imagination, we trace the elements and our very lives all the way back to their origins, all the way back to the ground and God. And we give thanks to the earth. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support our missional priorities, go to galileochurch.org and click on Share With Us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.